Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. On today's program, I'm delighted to welcome Thane Rosenbaum. Thane is a novelist, essayist, law professor, and distinguished university professor at Toro College, where he directs the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society. He has written numerous works of fiction and nonfiction and hundreds of essays in major national and global publications. He is the legal analyst for CBS News Radio and a columnist for the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. His most recent book is entitled Saving Free Speech from Itself. Thane, you are probably the most prolific person I know, so it's hard to decide where to start. But let's begin with your post-Holocaust fiction. When Elijah Visible, your book of short stories, was published in 1999, Elie Wiesel wrote, Thane Rosenbaum is totally obsessed with the Holocaust. His stories reflect that obsession. They are written with sensitivity and pain. So I'm reading the book now for the second time, and it is not only beautifully written, but gut-wrenching. For example, your description of a young lawyer stuck in an office elevator and believing that he was in the Holocaust is jarring. So Thane, would you tell our listeners um, what inspired you to fictionalize this very difficult and painful topic more than 20 years ago? And why did you choose fiction and not nonfiction? Well, first of all, Meryl, I'm delighted to be on your podcast and so happy that you, you. you're the perfect host for a book <laughs> podcast. And I am very delighted. I would, I would, I would always come back to support Thank you. this. Well, and you'll I, be invited. <laughs> and I, and, and I, I encourage your listeners to keep tuning in on Meryl Ains podcast. Thank you. Um, well, you know, my parents were Holocaust survivors. I was an only child, but not unlike many Holocaust survivors. My parents didn't really ever mention it. Um, it never came up. I was very aware of where they came from, but it was an unmentionable topic. Um, so I had lots of questions, all of which went unanswered, and they both died when I was quite young, just right out of high school. Mm. Um, and so I, I was an only child, and so there were no answers, really. And my family had been decimated by the Holocaust. My father came from a family of 13 children, and only two survived. Um, and by that time, my uncle was almost nearly dead also. So there was really no, um, you know, I had read widely on Holocaust related subjects, including Holocaust related fiction, um, and took courses when they were offered in, in college and grad school. Um, but I think that uh, it was something that was always unanswerable as it should be, right? The Holocaust in many ways is if they use the words often unimaginable, ineffable, right. unspeakable, those are always the words that, you know, the questions themselves are, are unanswerable. So fiction seemed like the best place to approach those questions in part because 
there was no real memoir in me because I didn't know anything. I didn't, other than the fact that my parents were survivors, nothing had happened to me. I'm not a victim of the Holocaust. I'm, I'm the, the sec, my second novel was called Secondhand Smoke to pick up on the idea that there's a, you know, another way of thinking about cigarette smoking, that the idea of receiving some knowledge, you know, not intimately, but secondhand, right. um, simply, simply by breathing next to the people next to you, right? Being the child of the, theirs. Right. So, um, so I, I fictionalized, now again, I, I think I talked to you about this once when your novel came out, we did this at a public event and I said, right. you know, there's a general rule that Theodore Adorno, a 20th century philosopher, uh, created, which was, you know, it's been translated to mean to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbarism. Sometimes right. it's translated right. as no poetry after Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of an, an unwritten rule, which frankly, most artists uh, uh, adhere to, which is don't fictionalize the camps, uh, don't fictionalize the killing fields like Babi Yar. Uh, don't fictionalize the years 1939 to 1945. Fictionalize everything else um, if you want to, right? And of course, there have been some, um, uh, you know, exceptions to the rule. But generally, you know, artists adhere to the idea of not going inside the death camps, not going inside the mass graves, but fictionalizing around it. So I, I, my fiction, I have always called post-Holocaust fiction. It's about the legacy of genocide. It's not the genocide itself. It's about the almost absurdity of, you know, trying to live a, a, you know, meaningful and normalized life in the aftermath of mass murder, right? How do you, how do you then join the PTA, right? Your parents, right? How do they raise you thinking that the world is a safe place? How do they not impart some kinds of lessons based on the fact that they were orphaned by the Holocaust. How, how do you take kids to Dairy Queen, right? You know, the very things that right. seem so normalized, how do you do that? Now, I know that this bears upon your own work, so you're really an, an expert on the same question, and it does rate, make for interesting, I think, novelistic elements, right? In, in the way you tell stories with the something like the Holocaust in the background, not in the foreground. Yeah, well, um... I, I find that so interesting. Now, again, I'm pretty upfront about this. I am not a child of Holocaust survivors. In fact, um, both my parents uh, were born here and served in the US Army um, in World War II, but I'm so interested um, to, and I had to grapple with I, whether I had the right to tell this story. So my answer to that was that I just did meticulous research and I, and I spoke to survivors and I spoke to um, friends who were children of survivors. And you know what I did find out was that either survivors talked about it and didn't stop talking about it or many, many in that time period did not talk about it. So I'm really, I don't know, I guess surprised to hear that your parents didn't talk about it because I just kind of assumed that um, your fiction was, was based on um, some things that you learned from your parents. So that, that's really um, interesting to me. Do you believe that as a child of survivors, 
um, you have a, a special responsibility to write about the traumatic impact of the Holocaust? No, and I actually, I'm not one of those proprietary people who would say, how dare Meryl Ain write, <laughs> you know, I think that's what the, that's the art of novel writing. It's what, it's what fiction means, right? It, it's, it's, the, it's the sorcery, the alchemy of what good novels are about. And so, no, I don't, for the same reasons, you know, we're living in a political culture now of the fear of appropriating other people's culture. Mm -hmm. So we're living in a time, a, a very, in my, a very dark time. In fact, it has an effect on my next novel, which I don't know if I could sell, frankly, in this culture, because you're, you can't speak in the voices of other people. You well, can't, that, you, yeah, you know. Yeah, the American, uh, Janine Commons, American sure. Dessert. I mean, I love that book. I, I thought that, uh, did you read it? I thought that it, uh, I felt such, um, uh, empathy and understanding um, for Mexican migrants. And she just got lambasted yeah, because she yeah, yeah. wasn't Mexican. Yes, of course. I mean, we're seeing this, this is part of the cancellation culture, right. but it's going to have an enormous effect on the creation of art. It will only lead to mediocrity. You know, if the only people that can write about something in, in fictional terms or make a movie about it, in fictional terms, are the people themselves who are of a particular skin color or sexual identity, you know, that is a tremendous restriction on the creation of art that the history of Western culture has never abided by. This is a new rule that identity marry, matters more than talent. Um, and that's what we're really, really being told, that one must apologize and not even consider the idea of you know, writing dialogue in the voice of someone that you're not, <laughs> when in fact, that's exactly what, you know, and so you're seeing this, you know, I have a friend of mine who's the president of a television uh, network, and he said, you know, the demand of equity, inclusion, and diversity means that they're literally saying to writing departments that write for television, it needs to be more diverse. Well, but the show is not about, if the show itself is not about a, a particular ethnic group, why would the, the writer's room need to be diversified? Well, That's it, an, it's an interesting question, but it's a question you're not allowed to ask anymore. But it doesn't make any sense. There can be then, by definition, no historical fiction because nobody alive now was involved was alive during um the middle yes. age let's say or even uh, world war one so how can you have um historical fiction you can't so um that that does not make sense to me i want to i want to get to your um new work in in a bit but i want to ask you about um another one of your books which i read which i actually read it a while ago and i'm still thinking about it so maybe you can uh clear some things up for me so um i want to ask you about the golems of gotham i thought it was incredibly powerful but one of the things that i can't stop thinking about is that the book deals with holocaust survivors some famous and some not, you know, not, who committed suicide and how tragic that was after surviving so much to then take 
their own lives years after. Why did you want to write about that? And what questions did you want to raise for the reader in doing so? Well, that book picks up on a, what I consider to be a, 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 the biggest post-Holocaust mystery, um, which is to clarify a little of how you described it. Statistically speaking, Holocaust survivors almost never committed suicide. That in right. fact, it was extremely rare on a percentage basis for the reasons that you said, right? That right. if one could in fact survive the Holocaust, one would recognize the preciousness of life. One would recognize that they survived for a reason, right? They would think that, you know, of course I could never take my own life. Um, that's true in the vast, vast, vast majority. But what I wrote about was that statistically speaking, the writers who were Holocaust survivors almost all killed themselves. Mm. which was an extraordinary post-Holocaust mystery. By the way, these men, Primo Levi, Jerzy Kaczynski, uh, Paul Salon, Tadeusz Borowski, uh, uh, Jean Ameri, the Belgium writer, Piotr Ravish, who was writing in France. I think I've covered all of them. I might be missing one or two others. Um, with the exception of Elie Wiesel, Aharon Appelfeld, and Imre Karatej, all the major Holocaust writers, uh, poets, fiction writers, memoirists, killed themselves. Oh none, of, none of them did it at the same time. None of that did it in, uh, with a knowledge of the other person. None of them left a note explaining why. It's astonishing, mm. given what I just said statistically, they don't do it, and yet all the writers. So it raised this interesting question which I thought is worth, and I brought all those writers back as ghosts. Yep. <laughs> uh, as, as, as a kind of millennial message uh -huh. of, you know, to finally answer what was behind the mystery. Why would they do such a thing? Mm -hmm. I think the book's position, I guess, is that it's, you know, not that much unlike Icarus flying too close to the sun, mm. right? That right. this kind of knowledge was dangerous knowledge, the survival of the camps, and to spend too much time thinking about it, uh, trying to make uh, sense of it, to make art out of it, to depict it, to represent it, right? Represent, um, uh, to reimagine it. All of those words that the writer would do is dangerous. Um, and that at some point it becomes too much and they all kill themselves. Uh, oh Again, it was an amazing, you know, sort of mystery that I always wondered why more, more people, like for instance, you does it doesn't sound like you knew, right? Most no. people don't don't know this is no, I, I I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an it's nobody knows. And I, it was something that I picked up at some point reading, and I, it was always in my head. Um, and I always just knew at some point I was gonna do something with it. Uh, and I, you know, years later when I started writing novels, it, it was ended up being my third book. Uh, but that's what was behind it. It was be precisely because statistically it never happened, that it happened so often in this case, it raised an interesting question and opened up the possibility to speak to their deaths in their afterlife, right? To sort of bring them back. And if you remember the book is, you know, even comedic in many places. It's yes, a, it's yes, a, totally. it's, mm -hmm. it's a, you know, millennial ghost story. 
um, but it's there to provide messages and lessons. Um, and the characters are very endearing. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it was the book, again, people never knew what to do with it. It was optioned once as a movie, didn't get made. It was optioned as an opera. It didn't mm -hmm. get made. Oh, an opera uh, would have been yeah. good. Yeah, it was optioned, which did get made into an, an aerial show, which was extraordinary. It played down in New York where, you know, the, the characters were in the air. Um, but yeah, that was the purpose for it, was to, to, to open up something that was not very well known and to give it a second life. Okay, so now that I know about this and I'm still thinking about this, I mean, it must be at least a year that I read, that I read the book. Um, what, what questions um, should I be raising or what message should I be getting from that? Or what, what did you want readers to walk away from? Just knowing about it or more than that? No, I mean, I think that the, the, the characters all speak in different voices and they're not necessarily, because it's fiction, I didn't do a lot of, a lot of research to get them right. In fact, I remember I received an angry letter from a woman who survived Auschwitz who said that my, uh, my depiction of Piotr Ravitch was just wrong. He was a horrible human being. Huh. Uh, and in fact, you know, he was sort of the, the most sensitive of the group that I, you know, created. He, he, he uh, pushes a, um, he's a ghost and he pushes a, uh, a the baby uh, carriage, a baby, exactly. A baby the carriage. Baby carriage. That's yeah, also empty. And he basically go walks up and down Broadway. Yeah. Oh, but that and, was so powerful. I mean, yeah, that so, was just like, I mean, that image. And the, and that the community of the Upper West Side comes to realize they don't get, you know, shocked by it. They know that this is, is happening. <laughs> they right. know that there's some sort of paranormal activity happening on Manhattan. And they recognize that there's this carriage. They don't know that it's being pushed by a ghost, uh, but it's an empty and it's really his children uh, are, are in, you know, he's trying to reclaim his children who were killed in the camps. The truth is Pietro Ravitch didn't have children. Uh, mm -hmm. So again, as a novelist, that would probably be interesting to you, right? I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, um, so, right. but I did create a kind of, uh, I would say, um, a tableau of different post-Holocaust ways of, you know, approaching the new world, right? Um, right. You know, Jean Armeri is, the, you know, filled with anger and rage and simply can't, you know, get past that. Um, the, you know, there are moments of life affirming uh, messages from, you know, Primo Levi, whose writing sometimes did, his poetry was very dark, but his actual nonfiction writings were actually filled with very life-affirming ideas. Mm -hmm. So the idea was really to just raise this concept of A, you know, how does life proceed in the aftermath of mass death? How, how what does normal look like? Uh, what can we expect of people who survive mass death? And what can we even expect of their children? Um, uh, you know, it, it really just opened up a lot of questions. Didn't answer them. I think it did speak a lot to what does never again mean, um, because it might be more useful to think about not again, which again is sort of a derogatory term. It's saying, how did you let it happen the first time? Hence, never again. Right. But more in terms of like never forget, right? That 
recognize that the Holocaust demands a kind of faithfulness to memory um, in any way possible. Um, and, and that it's, that's an obligation that all human beings have, right, to, to each other. Hence, you know, the controversies about this year's Olympics, right? Another example with the Uyghurs is say, well, you know, there's not, there's not a great takeaway from the Holocaust. Right. right. You know, there is this, you know, mythological statement by, um, you know, Santiana that those who fail to take away the right. lessons of history are doomed to repeat it or right. forgot how the exact quote is. And, you know, I've oftentimes said in writing in my classes, which that's a great quote. It's just utter nonsense uh, because people as a species, the humankind, we are destined to not learn the lessons of history. Right. It's, it's in proof in our personal lives. You know, people get out of relationships. I'll never marry that kind of a person again. They marry the exact same person. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Like, well, no, that never happens. There is a predisposition for something, a taste for something. And the, the human taste for eliminating other human beings is it's very strong. And, and the, the bystander effect of people watching from a distance is even stronger. Um, so all these premonitions and warnings that one should not remain silent, you see silence everywhere, right? There's all, all kinds of silence. I mean, I can tell you, you know, how many people who compliment my essays on, you know, on Facebook will not like it on Facebook. <laughs> I never, yeah. I never say anything to them, but I realize it's interesting that you chose to write me personally. I appreciate it. And I write, but I always say, it's interesting that you don't want to risk liking something because you don't want to have to answer for it if someone questions you. So right. there's all kinds of silence where people go, is it really worth it that I should get involved in something like this? Right? Well, if you ask someone like Ellie Wiesel, he'd say, yes, it's always worth it. It's always <laughs> worth it. Right. So yeah. again, that's what I'm saying. We don't, that lesson has never really been learned. And I don't think we ever will. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, so, uh, um, I've just been noticing, um, you know, on fire stick on Netflix and Amazon prime, um, there you, you can find Holocaust films, Holocaust, uh, uh, documentaries, um, Actually, if you look at the uh, best-selling category in Jewish books on Amazon, um, they're pretty popular. Um, what, what do you think is the responsibility um, of authors who write about the Holocaust? And, I, and I'll tell you what really um, disturbs me so much is when people either write about the Holocaust or do films about it and they make stuff up. Um, there was a series, I don't, it was called Captives or Captors or something where they made up, they, they, they just made up stuff. And people said, look, you don't need to make up stuff about the Holocaust. There's enough, there's enough um, real stuff. But do you think that um, people who either write about the Holocaust or write about the impact of the Holocaust um, have more of a responsibility uh, than other writers of historical fiction? And what's the danger of inaccuracies in Holocaust novels? 
Well, that's a really good and hard question. I would say the, 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 the moral issue was much stronger de several decades ago because there was so much more Holocaust denial. There still exists, but shockingly, it was being invoked much more. Um, and so anytime you fictionalize something, you open up something that you know a, a denier can use, right? You see, this never happened. You see, they don't know themselves what happened. You see, I told you it's exaggerated. It never was 6 million. There really weren't death camps, right? So you always have to worry. On the other hand, you know, you shouldn't be restricted from making art because you're worried about what a fringe group of hateful anti-Semites are thinking, right? Um, you know, so it, again, it raises moral issues, right? The, do you, I mean, for instance, I, for one, when Schindler's List came out, was critical of the movie. Um, and I, I feel less so today because I just think that while you're right about the amount of Holocaust movies and novels, there are far fewer today being made than ever than in any prior decade. You know, your book, which was such a wonderful novel, one of the things that was so great about it is that it, it got out there because there were fewer and fewer books with Holocaust themes that are being published nowadays. The 1990s, I would say, was the heyday of Holocaust art, where there was just a lot of memoirs, documentaries, movies, and certainly fiction. Um, I think it's less so today the, the, with each passing decade and with fewer survivors, you know, the rules are going to change invariably. Even Theodore Adorno's rule is no doubt going to change. And, you know, that was the reason he invoked the rule, right? That you don't make art out of, a, a bar, to, out of atrocity because it's barbaric, right? That you leave it alone. You, you don't, you leave it untouched and pure. Um, my criticism of Schindler's List was that you know, Steven Spielberg, any movie you made would have been a, a, a blockbuster. So why did you make a movie about two Nazis, right? One yeah. e evil and one and the other one redemptive. So there were people, I was a minority of the people, but were critical that you could have picked any story. Why tell this one? Um, so that, you know, I just think that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky issue. It's, it's not to me an issue of aesthetics. It's really an issue of morality, but I think that the, the rules are, are changing because time has passed and there's no way to control the central story anymore. Um, you know, people who don't, people who, who have, people who don't like Jews and don't like the way the Holocaust represents something that should be sympathetic toward Jews will find any reason to dismiss the Holocaust. You don't need to give them any. They will dismiss it anyway because well, you know. Yeah. The, the Let me bad... ask, yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you. So some people have argued that it's easier, and like as a former, well, as an educator, um, easier to teach about the Holocaust through fiction. So you know, as you know, the state of Holocaust information among young people in general is abysmal. Um, the um, Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany um, did, did, a, did a survey um, in 2020, a 50 state survey, and uh, um, um, Holocaust novel knowledge among millennials and Generation Z, and 63% of those surveyed 
um, did not know six million Jews had been murdered, and about half of those polled couldn't name a single concentration camp. So, um, do you think that that fictionalizing it um, bring? I, I mean, I I think, um, and it's interesting that you mentioned Schindler's List because. I actually, the and I've seen Schindler's List four times, which is very unusual. I rarely see a movie twice. Um, I saw it the first time um, with a group of high school students, you know, and I and when you think of what was spawned after Schindler's List, you know, the Shoah project and everything. What, what do you think that there is a place for fiction in teaching about the Holocaust? Well, a few things. First of all, Schindler himself was a person. And although Schindler's List was written as a novel, it was based on a historical character. And so right. most people are, I think, think of it as a novel, but it really is, if anything, a, a memoir, a biography written by a writer about, you know, so I'm saying it's a little it's a little different in that sense. It still doesn't mean there weren't fictionalized elements in the film or even in the book, that's for sure. But, but there, it was based on a historical character. Look, you know, the issue again is, a, to me, it's a moral one. It's not an aesthetic one. The question is, what duty do we have to the dead? What's our duty to the dead? Is it to remember anything or to remember the thing, right? Is it to know generalized trivia pursuit knowledge where, oh yeah, can you name three concentration camps in the next five seconds, right? Is that, is that what we're doing or creating who's got, who was Hitler's right-hand man? I mean, is that what we're talking about, about generalized knowledge or is it a kind of sitting with the, the horror of it, right? The okay. contemplate, right? And that's really- to That the, makes sense. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the question. I don't know the answer. I'm just setting up the idea, what's better? Is it to have general knowledge or is it to say, or rather to even say, what do you think the dead think, right? What is our duty to them? Do you want that? Do they want us to simply know a slice of something, just a slice, or do they want us to not bother? No, don't even bother with it unless you're really, really ready to sit with it and examine it. I, you know, I can't, I can't speak for the dead, but I think that's the question. So you're talking uh, and, about empathic knowledge, really. Yes. And really, you know, there's um, the mm -hmm. to me, the Holocaust Museum in D.C., which has a lot of Disney elements to it, does have that extraordinary moment where you sit in this room where you just hear the voices of survivors speaking in a quiet voice. Mm -hmm. And it's a contemplative section of the museum. I think it's outstanding where you just sit there. It's like, OK, I've walked through this museum. Let me take it. Let me sit down and let me think of digest this instead of saying, you know, let's where do you want to have lunch? DuPont Circle or in Georgetown? Right. Because to right. me, that is not what's that is not honoring the dead. Right. Treating it like you're seeing Monet and Manet's right. and then say, Look, where, where would you like brunch? Um, and, <laughs> right. You know, and I just think that's not honoring the dead. So, again, I'm not I'm not qualified to speak. For anyone i'm just i think i'm given this enough thought to at least raise the argument what's what's the reason what's the reason not to just say whatever limited knowledge that's provided is better than nothing you hear that all the time something is better than nothing 
Right. And there are people who might say, I know Cynthia Ozick said that for years and not many people were listening to her. Maybe nothing is better than nothing, right? I mean, that if you're not going to actually learn it, know it, sit with it, uh, in, incorporate it into your lives, speak about it openly, always be a student of it, then don't bother. The dead, the dead will not miss you. Wow. Wow. All right. I, I want to shift gears here and uh, talk about your latest book, Saving Free Speech from Itself, uh, which is nonfiction. It's uh, academic. Uh, in the book, you suggest that the right to free speech should not be absolute and in fact is not in other Western democracies. Would you tell us about that a bit and why as a Jew, you feel um, so strongly um, about your, uh, about this issue? Well, first of all, let me just correct a, uh -oh. one thought. No, 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 no. <laughs> it is definitely not academic. I don't write, ac I mean, I may be a oh. professor, but I never cop to that. I, I write books for people. Oh, um, okay. So any, Sorry. every, yeah, <laughs> I think that's the problem with universities today that professors write books for each other, not for the general public. Okay. Uh, if you wanted to know about free speech, this is your book, right? This, okay. is, not, this is not an academic book. Okay. I can assure you most scholars are, do not read Thane Rosenbaum. <laughs> they just really, don't. I'm shocked. They... No, they, they, no, they, they don't, no. They, they, they would consider me a, a generalist who writes for, for an audience in general. Okay. Yeah, I, so. I stand correct. No, no, I'm just saying it, 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 is, it happens to me all the time. People say, you know, the noted scholar. And I go, I'm not sure that I, I, the word scholar suggests that people can't process, you know, they, it's not accessible to a general audience. And I write for, for people. I, I, don't write for, I don't write for academics or for lawyers. I write for people. I'm happy for lawyers and academics who want to read it, but that's not my readership. Um, so yes, the, first of all, even in the United States, free speech is not absolute. Uh, there are certain what's called prescribed categories. Like for instance, uh, you know, you, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, right? Right. The, the, right. Mm -hmm. the, the uh, libel and defamation are not protected. Uh, obscenity is not protected. Uh, we saw this in, with President Trump, the incitement to imminent lawlessness is not protected, right? The issue in the Senate uh, impeachment trial uh, was the issue, the second one was, was he engaging in incitement? Because if you're engaging in incitement, you're not protected by the First Amendment, right? So there are some already limited prescriptions in the United States, but you're right in your broader point, which is that for the most part, we do have an absolutist position other than, you know, other than the limited prescriptions I just gave you. Whereas in other Western democracies, they have a very different understanding of free speech, which means that speech can be used as weapons. It could be used to wound, to harm, to actual cause harm, not to just insult, not to just offend, but to damage dignity, mm -hmm. to, depri to deprive people of a feeling of citizenship, right? So for instance, in the United States, we take great pride that we, in 1977, granted the Nazis a permit to march on a town of Holocaust survivors in Skokie, a suburb right. of Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, it, went to, it didn't even go to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court didn't even want to hear it because it was so obvious to the Supreme Court that the Nazis have a First Amendment right. People forgot or maybe never knew that they chose Skokie because Skokie at the time 
interesting tidbit of knowledge, had the highest percentage of Holocaust survivors in the United States per capita. Right. That right. means bigger than Brooklyn. It just so happened that mm -hmm. person for person, there were more survivors. So the Nazis knew where to go. And, mm -hmm. and the, they were represented by the ACLU, by Jewish lawyers. I mean, this was just you know insanity. Right? Now in Germany, such a, a march, the Nazis would be marched straight to jail. In, in Austria, such a march, they marched straight, straight to jail. Here, march this way, you're going to jail. This is where you go. Uh, in France, forget it, not even a question. We don't let you do this. We are Europe, we understand what the Nazis were about. And no, we don't, we don't consider that. When you march into a town of Holocaust survivors, you don't have, and there's no marketplace of ideas there. It's clearly what you're trying to do is harm people. You're trying to re-traumatize. That's, if you burn a cross on an African-American's lawn, in this country, perfectly legal. To me, this is just insanity. It right. utters, you mean a nation that had slavery and Jim Crow lets the Klan burn a cross on, Afri on African-American's lawn and only hold them for arson, nothing else? Nothing else? Yes, they have a First Amendment right. So I, the book takes a very uh, alternative position, one that is not favored by academics at all, you know, scholars at all, which says words can wound. Uh, and when they're not introduced to be ideas, introduced into a marketplace of ideas, that's what the founding fathers wanted. A public square where people get up on soapboxes and they debate the issues of the day. They might yell at each other, but they're being respectful. And these are about ideas. The idea that the founding fathers thought is that more of these soapboxes in the public square, the village greens, will help, first of all, two things. Government will be able to make better decisions by having the issues of the day debated. And people will be able to engage in representative democracy, give people a sense of their citizenship to express their views on the issues of the day. I don't see that as being the same as marching on survivors that says they had leaflets that says, we're coming to get you. Are you ready for that, Meryl? That was their leaflets. We're coming to get yeah, you. Yeah. Now, the, well, I can tell you, right, I'm I wasn't prepared to speak for Holocaust survivors who are dead. I'm perfectly comfortable speaking for George Washington. I'm very comfortable. There is no way that George Washington, who won this improbable war against the British, believed that you could make your statement of your opposition to the United States by burning the American flag in front of the faces of people whose children were died in battle. No, I'm telling you right now, there is no way when they signed off at the Constitutional Convention to the Constitution that they understood free speech to mean that. But we do permit flag burning and cross burning and marching on Holocaust survivors. And in Europe, you go straight to jail. So the question is, why? You know, what, why, what makes us so special that we would do that? And what I talk about in the book is the one word that does not appear in the Constitution or the Declaration in, of Independence is the word dignity, human dignity. There is no right to dignity in the United States. Whereas throughout all the other European constitutions, and by the way, Israel, uh, in their basic laws, they don't have a constitution, but in their basic laws, number five is dignity. 
guess what, Merrill? They don't even have free speech in basic dignity in, in the basic laws. In other words, the Israelis recognize they have free speech, but they didn't bother to put it in as a basic law. But dignity they did. Dignity they jumped. And the French are obsessed with dignity. The Germans are obsessed with human dignity. And 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 as and I want to say, as a Jew, <laughs> since it's answering a question, I'm obsessed with human dignity and wonder why wow. we, we are so willing to deprive people of the basic right to human dignity. One of my favorite quotes in the book, again, the book is filled with, again, for people, it's filled with lots of anecdotes. And one of my favorites was one from Lyndon Johnson, who said, a man has a right to leave his house with his children and not be humiliated in the public. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Mr. President, well, yeah. I think yeah. that um, we could do a whole other show on yeah. on this topic and and uh, very very fascinating. Um, uh, we're running out of time. Do you want to quickly tell us what you're working on now, Thane? No, I, I came afraid to. <laughs> no, I'm working oh, on a novel. I never speak about novels in advance, oh, but okay. I hinted I hinted at it before. The okay. problem with a novel is that it 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 isn't it it has voices in it that are not all Jews and in our present culture, that's problematic. So I'm still working okay. on it. All right, okay. Well, I, I this has just been a uh, riveting conversation. I can always count on you. Um, you are a the definition of a re Renaissance man. And <laughs> I wanna thank you so much, Thane, uh, for joining us today. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack, People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.